Welcome to uh, today's CGR seminar on food security trends and resilience building priorities, organized by IFPRI and supported by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, also known as BMZ, the, the German acronym. In this year's UN report on the state of food and security in the world, all three heads of the Rome-based uh, UN Food and Agricultural Agencies, as well as the heads of UNICEF and WHO, refer to the high vulner vulnerability of food systems to multiple and multiplying shocks and disruptions, economic contraction, and growing inequities as our new normal, and call for a redoubling of efforts to transform agri-food systems and leverage them towards reaching SDG Goal 2. Our panel of distinguished speakers today will focus on these vulnerabilities and examine some overarching priorities to be tackled in as we all redouble efforts towards food systems transformation. We would like very much for you to join our conversation. You can uh, participate in the Q&A session at the end of the seminar by submitting your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. It's now my pleasure to turn to Johan Swinnen, the Director General of IFPRI and the Managing Director for the Food Systems uh, uh, Transformation Science Group within the CGIR. Over to you, Jo. Thanks very much, Charlotte, and uh, thanks for this great introduction to the uh, seminar series. I am uh, more than delighted to welcome all of you here today to our seminar series. The first one is on, on food security trends and resilience building uh, priorities. As you know, and as Charlotte already mentioned, the world has uh, faced a series of overlapping and consequent, uh, um, consecutive crises in recent years. We've had COVID-19, we had extreme weather events, we had a series of conflicts, uh, both in Ukraine, but also in many other countries in the world. And all of these, of course, have affected global food security and, and nutrition. This is uh, the first seminar in the BMZ CGIR series on strengthening food system resilience. And if we is more than uh, delighted to uh, be invited to coordinate the series, as you know, much of IFPRI's work has to do with food system shocks. We try to predict them, measure their impacts, and provide evidence-based responses uh, and response systems and advice on, on policy work. We know that we need to transition from one-off crises to a more uh, concerted and long-term effort to build resilience in countries to deal with crises in the longer run and to better withstand them. These issues were also central to our latest global food policy report. This is IFPRI's annual report, and this year, which focused on rethinking crisis responses. And we will report some of the key uh, elements, the key findings of that uh, report in our presentations today. But there's, of course, much more which is happening at the CGIR that contributes to strengthen resilience. One example is the CGIR's research initiative a research initiative on fragility, conflict, and migration. You will also hear about that today. And this research initiative really focused on resilience building with a strong focus on climate, on gender equity, and social inclusion. And we know that these are uh, essential if we want to deal with resilience in a longer and sustainable uh, way. We're very pleased to partner with BMZ for this. Uh, the German government, also in its function as the past chair of the G7, has been actively involved in crisis responses and in supporting food system resilience. They've also emphasized the importance of having strong evidence-based 
uh, analysis for doing correctly, for putting in the right policies, the right institutions of uh, going forward. The series will run through the summer of 2024, and this is also when uh, it's which marks uh, next summer will be Germany's 50 year anniversary of support to the CJR, and we are extremely uh, grateful to uh, the government of Germany for supporting all our work for the strong support for food systems transformation. We want to thank in particularly Dirk Meyer. Dirk is uh, Dr. Meyer is on the program here today, and he has uh, provided great leadership in uh, supporting uh, the CGIR in our work on this area, and we look forward to hearing his reflections as well. I think in general, we have a great lineup of speakers today. We have uh, key contributions from the CGIR and also from, from the World Bank. I'm particularly pleased to welcome uh, Simeon Iwi. Simeon comes from the World Bank, but has just transferred to the CGIR. He is the new Director General of IITA, and he is also the Regional Director for Continental Africa. He'll speak to us about how CGIR works with our African partners towards strengthening resilience in Africa. Katrina Kosac will talk about uh, both rethinking crisis responses because she was a co-editor of the GFP, the Global Food Policy Report of this year at IFPI, but she is also leading the research initiatives on fragility, conflict, and migration. So she's excellently placed to uh, provide her insights uh, on this issue. We have Lynn Brown from Harvest Plus. Lynn has done a lifelong of work on the role of inclusion, equity, and resilience, particularly in gender equity, which is where she will reflect on today in her comments. And then last but not least, we're excited to have Martin van Nieuwkoop here. We have worked with Martin under the United Nations Food Systems Summit, and there he has been, he has really provided them, the, he was the main leader of the, the gender lever, the finance lever, not sorry, not gender, the finance lever at the Food System Summit. And he will has continued to emphasize the importance of finance for food system transformation in general and also for resilience building more specifically. And I look forward to his comments on this. I was asked as an introduction and a setting the scene, uh, the setting the scene, if you want to, to discuss a couple of general long-run trends that we see on food security and the relationship with vulnerability and with shocks and resilience. So uh, with that, I'm gonna ask uh, to put uh, some slides up, which will guide me and guide us uh, through this. Uh, next slide, please. <clears throat> so the next slide has is exactly 10 years old, and it has a, uh, a cover of The Economist, a journal that uh, many of you will know. And it talks about, and the main uh, Topic of the main uh, item of the of the of the issue is about uh, is about towards the end of uh, poverty. Meaning, this is uh, the uh, the end of poverty is in sight. We have seen a very dramatic reduction of poverty up till 2020, uh, 2013, and this is predicted then to go further. And the discussion is so: how will we live in a world where there's no more poverty? And on the right hand panel, you see data from the uh, FAO. And there, uh, the data, this is on, on hunger or malnutrition, undernutrition, and there you see they go very much in the same line. And so the thinking is also poverty and malnutrition will disappear from our world. Of course, we are in a very different world today. Next slide, please. So in 10 years, our, uh, the situation has changed a lot. Uh, you see that since 2015, there's been a transformation, a, a rebounding of malnutrition in the world, of hunger in the world, and this is due to a number of factors, but the, this reversal, this structural reversal, is a cause of very strong concern. Next slide, please. 
If you look beyond hunger numbers and look more deeply into nutrition problems, then you can see that the numbers are much higher. So the, the hunger numbers from FAO are around 800 million people uh, suffering from, from hunger. But if you look at the, the number of people in this world who cannot afford a healthy diet or who are facing micronutrient deficiencies, we're talking about two to three billion people. And that's a huge share of the people living on this planet. Next slide, please. At the same time, we have a number of things that have happened uh, which have contributed to this reversal, if you want. So one of them is the growing impact of climate change, the negative, the, the, the negative impact on, of climate change on uh, malnutrition and on, on poverty and hunger in the world. It is due to a combination of factors, increasing droughts, increasing floods, which are affecting both the supply of uh, uh, food in the world and therefore the food prices. And of course, directly affecting the most vulnerable people in the world, their livelihoods, their incomes, and their capacity to access food. Next slide, please. Um, COVID-19 has, as all of you uh, know, no doubt, has affected both the incomes of the poor people in the world or incomes of many people in the world, but particularly the, the least, uh, the most vulnerable. And at the same time, related to that, but, but through a combination of factors, also how it has affected uh, the supply uh, systems, etc. It has also negatively affected the quality of the food, not just the quantity of the food. And it has particularly reduced the um, consumption of the most nutritious products, which typically are also the more expensive products. And you see this has so a double effect, both an income effect and in terms of quant and a quantity effect and a quality effect on nutrition security in the world. Next slide, please. On the, um, if we then look more deeply into more recent uh, conflicts, how they have affected uh, food security, and here the numbers refer to food crises, so it's a more narrow definition, a more acute form of food insecurity. There we see that conflict and migration have played a very important role there. The, um, the, the numbers there are from the global uh, report on food uh, crises, where IFPRI is contributing to, together with FAO and other organizations, and it showed that over the last uh, four years, these numbers have gone up very significantly, both due to conflicts in the world, uh, insecurity to weather extremes and to economic shocks. But you could see that particularly the crisis problems, the, the, in the acute forms of food insecurity are very much caused by conflict and insecurity. And on the right-hand panel, you can see that forced displacement of people, of vulnerable people, has increased tremendously over the last uh, decade, really, the last 15 years. And this is a very worrisome trend. Next slide, please. Um, the, basically, people have not only contributed to these problems in, in through uh, our activities and how they have affected climate change in the world, through conflicts, which of course also uh, people induced, but also through a number of other uh, economic policies which have affected access to food, uh, food prices, etc. So one of them are uh, is uh, trade restrictions. We've seen that following the food price crisis in 2007, 2008, there was a very strong increase in, in export restrictions. We saw the same um, after following the um, the outbreak of COVID-19. And we are seeing uh, similar trends after the uh, Ukraine invasion by Russia, which triggered price increases. And therefore, the trade restrictions amplified this, and uh, which is really reinforcing the problems. 
we have some um, on the left hand side, you see the dependence of some of the most vulnerable countries in the world on uh, wheat export from Russia and Ukraine. And you see there's a lot of variation, but several of them are quite were quite depending on it when the conflict broke out. Uh, there's been developments uh, in, in terms of the, how trade restrictions have affected that, but the recent developments are uh, problematic again with the withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain Initiative by Russia. And very soon afterwards, the, the rice market, the global rice market, was affected by India uh, banning rice exports to a, a number of countries. And uh, with India being a very important player in the rice market, this has uh, contributed to increased uh, food insecurity in, in, in countries affected by that. Next slide, please. So my last slide has to do with uh, what is the new normal that we are facing. And so on the left-hand side, you see a panel of price uh, evolutions, both from food prices, oil prices, and fertilizer prices over the last 22 uh, years. And on the right-hand panel, you see more recent data. These are for the last three years or something for cereal price indices. Uh, and what we see there is that the norm is no longer stability. When we have a, uh, when we talk about the food price shock, that means deviation from the norm, which would be stability. What we see here is over the last 25 years, mostly, that volatility has been a, a characteristic of our markets. And that means that for our policy framework, how to deal with that, the reference is a volatile world, and that's what we should uh, face. This is uh, the issues that we need to address in our food policies uh, going forward. So we have a lot of challenges, and uh, actually I do have one more slide, um, and uh, we have a lot of challenges to address, but at the same time, there's also signs of resilience in the world. We, for example, have observed in our food supply chains in the world during COVID-19, for example, also now the shocks caused by, by uh, the Ukraine war, that food supply chains have proven to be more resilient than we had anticipated. There's been a ton of innovation institutional, management-wise, also a lot of technological innovation, for example, the growth of digital and e-commerce, which have really uh, had a major impact on, on these food supply chains. And this has uh, brings important lessons, I think, for us to go forward, to take forward and to draw upon. So it is not just the challenges we face, but I think also the opportunities, particularly drawing some of these lessons and see how uh, dealing with more sustainable practices, dealing with climate change going forward, can uh, we can learn from that and we can create, try to create framework, try to create policy environments where they can flourish and grow. With that, Charlotte, I hope I have provided a framework which, uh, for which the other contributions will come in and uh, make, uh, give us lessons of uh, how they see what best can be done. Back to you. Thank you so much, Yo. You have indeed. And thank you for ending on a bit more of a positive note by pointing out that there are, in fact, uh, some real points of resilience that, that can be built upon further. And I think a lot of those points of resilience became apparent both during the COVID crisis as well as the uh, aftermath of the uh, Ukraine invasion. It's now uh, my great pleasure to turn um, the floor over to Dirk Meyer from BMZ. He is serving, I think, just for a few more days as Director for Global Health, Economy, Trade and Rural Development. Um, and he will speak to us to, uh, about how the German government has and continues to engage on resilience building. Thank you so much to you, Dirk, for your leadership on these very, very important issues. The floor is yours. Yeah, Iris, uh, thank you very much. I hope you can hear me. Yeah, 
fine. And the picture is on top. Yes, now it's perfect. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, dear uh, Iris, uh, dear uh, Johan, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's my great pleasure to uh, extend a, a warm welcome to all of you um, as we embark on this uh, policy seminar series. Um, first of all, my thanks to uh, IFPRI for hosting our joint uh, kickoff CGIAR BMZ policy seminar and uh, coordinating this series of seminars, which will lead into next year, at which point Germany will have been an active player uh, in the CGIAR uh, uh, for 50 years, as Johan just mentioned. As a leader in delivering critical science and innovation to transform our agriculture and food systems, for over 50 years, the CGIAR plays a critical role in refining and improving practice and policy responses. At today's uh, seminar, we will focus on strengthening the resilience of agriculture and food systems to build a food secure future and identify priority investments and actions that will pave the way for this uh, transformative uh, journey. Well, there are plenty of reasons, uh, Iris, you just mentioned it, to be pessimistic about the future trajectory of our agricultural and uh, food systems. Working together on these challenges with you distinguished colleagues from CGIAR system and the World Bank and your partners fills me and filled me with a lot of uh, optimism. I'm convinced that we, with joint and continued uh, commitment, uh, along with your expertise and dedication, we can transform agriculture um, uh, and uh, food systems. And this is very important for me and it's important for the attitude of the German government to have this mindset of wishing to transform the agricultural uh, systems. It is out of this conviction and as a response to the challenges that lie ahead that we in the BMZ have intensified our multilateral partnerships uh, with you. In a world way off track to achieve sustainable development goal uh, number two, this is urgently needed. Every day, Johan mentioned the figures, 735 million people go to bed hungry. There are 122 million more people than before COVID-19 and Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. While COVID-19 led to income losses for hundreds of million households, food prices skyrocketed uh, to unprecedented levels as a result of Russia's war. And as a result, last year, a global food security crisis was just around the corner. Protecting the most vulnerable who were hit hardest by the cost of living crisis meant taking immediate, joint and coherent action. To do so in an effective and efficient way, the global community had to coordinate their actions. This is why Minister Schulze, together with the World Bank, launched the Global Alliance for Food Security that brought humanitarian and development actors together in an agile and swift manner. And therefore, I think, again, we had a blueprint for how to react immediately and in a long-term perspective. There was a laudably swift response 
from the global community, scaling up several initiatives and mobilizing additional funds by our Global Alliance for Food Security partners. These efforts contributed that global hunger and food insecurity did not deteriorate further. Since then, food prices, although still at historically high levels, have fallen. But while we manage to mitigate the effects of the crisis, we need to understand shocks such as a COVID-19 pandemic, Russia's war, the heat waves, the droughts and floods, as Johan shown in his uh, pages and, and, and slides, are becoming more frequent and overlapping. It is part of the new normal. In fact, this year's July was the hottest month on record and extreme weather uh, events induced by climate change are proliferating, leading to more and more crop losses worldwide. To prevent this cycle of crisis from hitting us more frequently and more harshly, building resilient agricultural and food systems is the key. We therefore must think ahead, go beyond immediate crisis reaction and address the underlying and structural changes, challenges in the agricultural and food systems. This is exactly what we are aiming to accomplish with the BMZ's special initiative, transforming agricultural and food systems, which is our central tool for this transformation agenda. For example, we invested 100 million US dollars into the World Bank's multi-donor trust fund food systems 2030 to assist our partner countries to repurpose currently unsustainable agricultural support towards resilient, inclusive, and sustainable practices. In the same vein, through the compensation initiative that we launched under our G7 presidency in 2022, we provide rural communities and small-scale producers with payments for ecosystem services in three pilot projects in Brazil, in Ethiopia, and Lesotho. Moreover, with the global program Food and Nutrition Security Enhanced Resilience, we support countries in Africa and Asia in combating the causes of malnutrition, with women in particular learning about healthy food, its production, storage, and processing. And of course, Germany is a strong ally of the CGIAR, which we have been funding for almost 50 years now. We are very much excited about the prospects of the ongoing reform towards a unified one CGIAR. This year alone, Germany is contributing around 20 million euro to selected initiatives of the unified research portfolio. And we are for the first time providing an additional 10 million euro as unrestricted pooled funding to the CGIAR. So with that money, we really try to show that we are in the forefront of this reform and try to support that as much as possible. By contributing to healthy biodiversity, sustainable production and protecting soil fertility, forests and water, 
these programs directly strengthen the resilience of our agriculture and food systems. As you can see, hopefully, BMZ has put the transformation of agriculture and food system at the heart of its agenda and will do so over the next uh, years. Broken agricultural and food systems are not inevitable. That's also a big message. Um, but fixing them requires all hands on deck. And we need you, our network partners and allies, because only together we can manage the transformation. This is also an aspect that makes me not pessimistic, but optimistic, because the will for that is there. I'm convinced more than ever that we, as the international community, together with our local partners, share the same vision of resilient, healthy, sustainable, and inclusive agricultural and food systems, and are working towards the same goals. And Iris, uh, in a half sentence, you already indirectly mentioned it, ending, therefore, I would like to end on a personal note within BMZ. I will soon take over a new role as a director general of multilateral development, transformation, and climate, the continuous engagement and strengthening of our multilateral partnerships is a key priority for BMZ. And I'm very much look forward to continue our very positive collaboration towards a sustainable transformation with you all. And some of you might know that even my colleague Sebastian Lesch, who did also quite a bit of a job in CGIAR, is going to move with me. So therefore, we have new bridges between the old division and the new one. So uh, you won't get rid of mine and uh, my <laughs> energy. Of course, now I wish you all a successful webinar. And I'm very much excited of hearing your suggestions of how we can achieve more resilient and food secure agriculture and food systems worldwide. So I hope to give an insight in what the German government, the BMZ, is doing and what my next topics will be very much and very close to what I did already over the last two years. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dirk, for that overview of the tremendous support uh, that Germany has given both to crisis response and now shifting to a greater focus on, on building resilience. And we, uh, all of us in the CGIR and our partners look forward to engaging with you in your in your new roles. Certainly you have already done a lot of multilateral work and uh, this seems to be a, a perfect new uh, official title for you moving into the future. We now turn to Katrina Kosek, who's a senior research fellow at IFPRI. She played a pivotal role, as you mentioned, in the uh, in IFPRI's 2023 Global Food Policy Report on Rethinking Food Crisis Responses. And she's also the co-lead of one of the newest CGIR research initiatives on fragility, conflict, and migration, which is building up an evidence base on crisis response and resilience building in countries particularly vulnerable to food system shocks. Katrina, thanks for being with us today. Um, you're going to talk to us uh, about some of the key findings and recommendations of IFPRI's um, Global Food Policy Report, and also introduce a bit more your initiative. Over to you. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Um, now, the presentations of Dr. Swinnon and Dr. Meyer are really laying clear the challenges that we're facing today. And IFPRI's 2023 Global Food Policy Report points to what we know about the potential solutions to these challenges, and it really offers guidance on 
where research is needed to promote resilient food systems as well as effective crisis response. Next slide, please. So the report opens by highlighting the fact that calls for building resilience to crises and for effective crisis response are not new. But we're recognizing based on the trends we've seen in the previous slides and presentations that these are increasingly urgent calls. This report is providing cutting edge analysis using many methodologies from IFPRI, other CGIAR partners and external partners, including the World Food Program on recent crises, how they have impacted food security, nutrition, poverty, livelihoods, and many other important outcomes to well-being. And it's sort of concentrating um, concrete strategies together in one volume for how we can go about resilience building and crisis response. There's also, um, we've tapped very much into those uh, living in country and experiencing these challenges firsthand to develop regionally differentiated approaches and understandings of how the challenges vary across space and what are effective ways to address them in different contexts. Next slide, please. <clears throat> now, there are six thematic chapters following the introduction of the report, and we also have six regional chapters that I mentioned that are covering uh, the, the different challenges faced in different contexts. And I would love to um, now sort of distill some of the key policy recommendations coming out of these very various chapters. Next slide, please. <clears throat> So this report is really attempting to chart a new path to address these increasingly common new normal crises and to promote resilience. It's focused on evidence-based tools, policy models, and various approaches that we have. And it points to the need to align humanitarian aid with medium as well as long-term development strategies um, and with resilience building plans so that we can really have these solutions reflect a humanitarian development peace nexus approach. The cornerstones of effective responses here are effective governance and coordination, as well as sufficient and flexible funding. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so on this first point, uh, effective governance is key to promoting resilience building and timely crisis response. First, this governance is central to deploying and sustaining different programming from anticipatory action to humanitarian assistance and social protection and other programs. We need a, a, a structure um, of governance that is supportive of these programs, allows them to be sustained and continued and to reach the right people. We also note um, that these programs, uh, that, that effective governance itself has the ability to promote market stability and innovation in the private sector. And it can further contribute to the sort of trust and social cohesion that are central to efforts to thwart future crises. Coordination though is critical. Uh, we need um, international, national and local levels aligned and pushing in the right direction so that we have policy coherence. And the public, private, and civil society sectors have roles to play here. Each has the power and capacity to promote resilience and, again, need to discuss with each other and come together in fora that will promote coordinated responses in, in which no actor is undermining the efforts of another, but rather they're magnifying their joint efforts. Finally, the Global South and the Global North collaborating together can result in identifying what are the right challenges 
and what are the right ways to target efforts. Policy Forum can also help here uh, to build consensus. Uh, Martian is going to present in, in more detail later on the funding considerations to provide uh, a better food system, um, but I welcome you to visit the report on these points as well. Next slide, please. Now, sufficient and flexible funding here. Um, needs for funding have increased, and we know this because of the increasing um, rate at which crises are arriving. We also know that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Investment in resilience and anticipatory action can really reduce the future costs of humanitarian response. Now, funding options are needed, and one possibility is repurposing about 600 uh, U.S billion dollars in government agricultural supports. Um, also improved government regulation and incentives can be important for shifting private investment toward crisis prevention and toward resilience building efforts. And development banks can also de-risk investment and resilience through use of blended finance. Next slide, please. So the policy recommendations emerging from the thematic chapters are many, and I've tried to distill some of the key messages here, but I encourage you to visit the report itself for even more nuanced lessons. First, on early warning and early action system. These systems are really important, but they have to be, they have to be, um, uh, they must better address the complexity of crises that we're seeing today and build resilience in advance. It's really important to fill uh, monitoring and evaluation gaps. And also, there's a lot of different and disparate systems that are not effectively integrated at the moment. But integrating them can ensure that policymakers are receiving clear, timely, and importantly, actionable warning signals. Anticipatory action frameworks are important as well. They require monitoring data that will illuminate the risks and exposures and vulnerabilities. They can mitigate crises at lower cost and really contribute to longer term development efforts. Um, but we also know that they require robust governance, uh, which is important to improve uh, targeting and, and efficacy. Next slide, please. Now, resilient agri-food value chains are also central to building resilience. Businesses should invest in improved and innovative tools like climate smart agriculture and new forms of insurance. Governments should create a business environment that fosters value chain innovations. And also, collecting data uh, can help target assistance to crucial value chain nodes where assistance is most needed. Responsive social protection systems are, are another aspect of promoting resilience and crisis response. Governments need to have highly adaptive, flexible, and inclusive social protection systems in these fragile settings. They need to integrate shock responsive social protection with early warning and early action and humanitarian aid for greater coherence of these various programs. And it's also important to explore new ways to cover costs because those costs are rising, um, for example, uh, climate or green financing, as well as to reduce costs like using mobile payments or other innovative delivery mechanisms. Next slide, please. Now, empowering women amid crises is also a high priority, and Lynn Brown will speak to this more in a moment. But I'd like to point out that first, improving the quality of gender disaggregated data that's collected before, during, as well as after crises can help create um, gender targets and that measure that those gender targets are actually achieved. 
increasing women's political participation and amplifying their voices and agency in their communities precisely when those voice, that voice and agency is often eroded um, is, is also essential to ensuring we don't have slides in gender equality occurring uh, during crises. Responding to forced migration is, is another um, important um, way to build resilience and respond to crises effectively. Governments should invest in infrastructure and design policies that expand the benefits of migration because we know migration is a really critical livelihood strategy. But often in situations in which it's, it's, it's forced, um, you need to have innovative data collection to better understand and address the root causes of that forced migration and to provide stability and uh, livelihood support for host communities and migrants as well. Next slide, please. I'd like to thank our authors here. As I mentioned, this is a collection of IFPRI researchers, researchers from the rest of the CJAR, uh, as well as external partners. Next slide, please. Now, um, I really would like to tell you a bit now about the new CJIR research initiative on fragility, conflict, and migration that I lead. Uh, my co-leads are Peter Latterack from the Alliance of Biodiversity and SEAT, as well as Sandra Ruxtel from the International Water Management Institute. FCM launched in April 2023, and before then, we were collaborating on the GFPR. It was a very important vehicle for helping us outline from the start the existing as well as needed research and evidence for effective crisis response. So FCM is taking up this research agenda. We've been requested by the most important actors in the humanitarian relief sector, including the World Food Program, uh, with whom we collaborated on the GFPR, to be part of their impact pathway as a research and evidence provider. And our strategic plan here is focused on building stronger relationships with partners in fragile and conflict-affected settings, co-developing research on partner demands, and supporting decision-making for stakeholder policies and programming. Next slide, please. Just a final slide here. FCM is comprised of five work packages addressing various stages of fragility and conflict. It provides a multifaceted, mutually reinforcing set of strategies to alleviate fragility and conflict and promote gender equality and social equity in the hardest to reach settings. This map shows where we work based on partner demand and I'd be happy to engage on this further. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you very much, Katrina. Great overview of the GFPR and uh, of the Fragility, Conflict, and Migration Initiative. Our next speaker is Simeon Ewi. I'm uh, really pleased to welcome him to this panel. Uh, all of you may know that Simeon, after a, a very distinguished career at the World Bank, where he served as the Director of Sustainable Development in West and Central Africa and uh, with the World Bank's Food and Agriculture Global Practice, has now uh, come back, I should say, to the CGIR. He has taken over as the Director General of the International Institute for Tropical Agriculture. And very important here for our purposes today, he is the first ever uh, regional director for global, for continental, excuse me, Africa, um, a very important new role within the CG. Um, Sibian, you're going to speak to us today on how you view the CGIR's role in supporting African-led resilience building. We're really looking forward to your presentation, and thanks again for joining us. Uh, we're delighted to have you so soon after you have embarked on this new and important role within the CGIR. Oh, thank you, uh, uh, Charlotte. I want to make sure that uh, you hear me very well, and uh, you see me as well. Okay. Very well. Yes, let me 
uh, take this opportunity to uh, thank uh, uh, IFPRI and uh, for hosting the uh, BMZ uh, CGIAR seminar uh, series. I'm truly excited to be part of it. And I, I, I want to, you to know that uh, today I mark my first month as uh, in my new role uh, as a DJPITA and uh, 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 Region Director for uh, CGIAR for Continental Africa. And then uh, this is my first official seminar you know, in my new capacity. So uh, it's really an exciting uh, a moment. Let me uh, thank uh, uh, again you and also uh, uh, Dirk Meyer for, uh, on, uh, for uh, uh, supporting uh, uh, this initiative and also the contribution of uh, BMZ to the work of the CGIAR. It's really uh, fantastic. I want to wish you well uh, in your uh, next um, uh, assignment. So uh, I will be talking uh, about uh, uh, you know how you know we are supporting the Africa-led you know building you know resilience uh, uh, in, um, uh, in in the continent. Next slide. So uh, very clearly, uh, uh, as we all know, and uh, even from the slide earlier of you, we are truly uh, in a race against time on food security, the clock is ticking and there's no time uh, you know, to waste. And the job of the CGIAR is uh, to help to transform and build this resilience into full land and water system is significant. The problem is that uh, the CGIAR has been working in this area, but now the challenge is even greater with the impact of climate change which is uh, you know, wreaking havoc on our food uh, systems. Next slide. And the challenge for Africa uh, is quite unique because we're talking about uh, uh, about 250 you know, million, uh, let's say a third almost of the population that are uh, small scale. They operate on a very small uh, plot and they are the ones that are producing much of the food. Uh, from uh, the continent, there was 70% of it. And the challenge also that we're facing is that over the next uh, 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 30 years, 25 years or so, we are talking about uh, having 2.5 million you know, uh, people to, to feed. And there's pressing need again to improve productivity, to catch up and produce nutritious food and meet its growing demand. This is a big challenge. And that's where the role of science become quite uh, uh, important. Next slide. So I mentioned the role of, of science, and that's where the CGIAR uh, in Africa is addressing these challenges you know, to have, achieve zero hunger in Africa by 2030. We're just talking about uh, uh, just a few years down the road, about uh, less than seven years. And uh, we do CGIAR proven innovation and commitment to using research to improve food system transformation and enhance the resilience of the food system will be key to resolving these challenges. The role of science become critical, uh, working together with the national program and the regional organizations to be able to deliver science-based results. Next slide. So science and innovation, as I said earlier, must be brought to the forefront 
to provide the solution to food uh, problem in Africa. Without the role of science, there's no way that we'll be able to uh, 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 beat the race against the food security and security in Africa, where population is rising very fast and economy is actually crumbling as a result of that. So there's need to catalyze uh, the strong ties between the CGIAR, scientists, researchers, the African food producers, the policymakers, the private sector, uh, the national program, uh, all the stakeholders like the, the media, the champions, to be able to transform food in, um, in, in Africa. Next slide. So we, what are the solutions that uh, we are having? We need to, uh, to transform and build resilience into food system. Uh, CGIA is working on long-term resilient solutions in water, land, and food system. CGIA is also working on achieving zero hunger in Africa by 2030 through strategic partnership. Eh? And then also the priority of, of African leadership is quite important. So we need to, it's critical for Africa to uh, bring, for, uh, to, to, to have a broader socio-economic development that, and then have an agricultural system that adapt to the changing uh, needs. Next slide. So the question now to us is, what can we do? There are three basic broad solutions, and I'll break one of them into a few pieces uh, in subsequent slide. Public policy reforms. Policy reform is continuously important. And I think uh, uh, you, Dirk, mentioned that earlier, that our policy reform should support coming smart agriculture and how to do that. I'll talk about the repurposing of public you know, expenditure to be able to address this issue. The strengthening of markets is quite important. The market must function so that when market function, the production side can respond to the market side. We need to be able to diversify assets, encourage diversified and resilient livelihood. Next. Here are some of the few uh, breakthroughs. Uh, the CJA has been in Africa for over 50 years or so, uh, uh, different centers at different uh, stages, and it has made, made significant progress. And I think we need to recognize that. That, for example, thanks to the work of the CJA in Africa, you know, we were, able, we were able to have climate resilient maize grown in 13 African countries that, that are delivering 30% uh, more yield with 2.1 million people lifted out of poverty. This is a huge result. The CGI helped to also have drought tolerant rice, rice uh, that have increased yield between 15 and 24%. Uh, we have a clear example of improved order technologies that increased milk production. These breakthroughs need to be able to be scaled up. Next. The, uh, now with uh, the development of digital you know, technologies, we are saying um, that um, uh, we have emerging you know, digital technology that are really coming up, that are providing opportunities for many uh, uh, farmers. Um, currently, we have 7 you know, million of, uh, people in Senegal that have access to a climate and from you know, advisory leading to 10 to 25% increase in incomes. I'm told that my time is up. I, I, I feel that I just started basically. I didn't have uh, much time, but. Let me just, you know, actually zoom through um, uh, a few slides toward the, um, uh, to, toward the end, and then I can sort of uh, come back later on when we do have uh, 
uh, a question, but let's 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 slide. Let's let me go to uh, uh, if you could zoom through uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, solutions. Uh, the slide on solution, it will be good. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Next, next. Yeah, because of uh, we need to be. Yeah. No, no. Go back. Go back again. Sorry. I was almost finished. Okay. Yeah. Yes, on delivery. So I was just saying that uh, earlier that the biggest challenge we're facing, the, those breakthroughs are there, but are not having any significant impact on the ground. So how do we deliver them? How do we make sure that the techniques that have been developed by CJR and the national program are reaching the people? And that's where I think working with development partners like the, the, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and other uh, 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 funding agencies, we can, you know, uh, accelerate the uptake of the technologies. And here, I, I just talk about a few examples, like the ICRA project that the World Bank is funding, or the TAT, you know, project that uh, the African Development Bank is funding. Those instruments are being used to accelerate the delivery of technologies. And this partnership that we're having between, you know, the CGIR and the Development Bank is the way also to go because then we can take to scale the, the research that result that we're having. So I wanted to really mention that. And, and then uh, at the end of the day, where are we going to get the money from? The resources are uh, scarce, but we can actually help to support uh, the countries in, you know, through uh, um, uh, innovative you know, financing. Let's go to the last slide, basically. That's where I'm having a bit of a, go to the last slide on, in, on financing, go ahead. Go ahead again. Thanks for wrapping up with that, uh, yeah. The last slide, yeah, go to the last slide and we'll finish there. Yeah, so that's where I think the CJR needs, continue to need some help basically to be able to uh, have additional resources to be able to you know move to scale. So let me stop here, uh, Charlotte, and, and, uh, uh, and I can come back to some of them in the, in the Q&A uh, uh, discussion, over. Thank you very much, Simeon. I, I propose that we build in another seminar in this series uh, on Africa, where we bring you back and uh, bring some of our important partners in Africa also back. Uh, let us look at that. Thank you so much. And we'll come back to you in the, in the Q&A session. Um, we're now moving on to a, a topic that's been raised a number of times by our speakers so far. Um, Lynn Brown is with us. She will address gender considerations for just and strong food systems. Lynn serves presently as the Director for Policy, Strategy, and the Africa Region at Harvest Plus. She has tremendous expertise in food and nutrition, and that expertise is matched by her commitment to both research and, I would say, advocacy around the gender topics. Lynn helped us also with the GFPR. She's a co-author of the chapter on gender, and we're delighted that you're with us today, Lynn. The floor is yours. Thank you, Charlotte. That was a lovely introduction. I appreciate it. Um, can we have the first slide, please? Um, and then the next one. And I decided to start a little bit historically. Um, I've come full circle and rejoined IFPRI, which is where I started my career more than 25 years ago. And one of the first things I was engaged in with Agnes Kasumbing and some others 
was Women the Key for, to Food Security, a publication that still gets a lot of attention today and was targeted at the Beijing Women's Summit in the mid 90s. And in that, we were still on the old definition of uh, food security. So it was about availability, access, and utilization. And we documented across those three pillars, basically, the inequality that women faced in access to land, access to knowledge, access to financial services, more likely to be poor, less access to food in the household, but actually they were the buffers for their households. And this was also the time when we were moving from a women in development focus to a gender in development focus. Now, part of that was political. It was largely women doing much of the research and the women weren't in the room and it was seen as very feminist. And, you know, if you empower women, you must disempower men. Um, and so it moved to talking about gender because it was felt that would be an easier conversation to have. But it was right because these inequalities are not due to biological differences between the sexes, they're due to a social construct that comes about and creates the norms that dictate what's good for men and what's good for women. So if we move on to the next slide, this is what I call the good news slide, because we went from some research on women and gender um, to a lot of research, uh, more detailed research in subtopics, uh, a broadening of the topics. And IFRI and the CG has led a lot of this with respect to natural resources and food security and agriculture. So you can see we looked at land, water and trees. We looked at bundles of rights and the issues that if you privatize those rights, then quite often it's women that lose out. We looked at women's assets, how they recruit, their income flows, financial services, mobile phones, you know. Do women have access to mobile phones? How critical are they for information today, particularly in disasters? Way back in 1991, nine out of 10 deaths in Bangladesh in a huge cyclone were women, not men, because they didn't get the alerts and you know, they waited for their husbands to come home to decide whether they could leave. We've learned a lot about social protection. We've broadened into much more empowerment, the concept of empowerment, the measurement of it. If for his seminal, we are um, what? We've taken it into human rights, into education, um, violence against women, which we know is more prevalent in fragile countries and increases quite often in displacement situations for IDPs. We've looked at the enabling inequality. By that, I mean the legal systems, the governance systems, inheritance. But at the end of the day, women are the resilience of their families. Their assets are actually sold first. So they have less to start with and they're sold first. So that doesn't seem like a good deal for women to rebuild after a crisis. It's their food that they sacrifice. It's their nutrition and health that they sacrifice to ensure that their families are fed. So in a sense, they are the social protection mechanism um, for their households. So we know a lot and we know actually it's women that are providing the resilience quite often for their households. So given we know all of this, how are we working with women to ensure that they then have the resources to deliver that? And if we move on to the next slide, 
let's look at how this is going. You know, and, and I put a subtitle on the, the immunization, which I'll come to. So donor development policies, we see a lot more commitment across all development partners to gender. I was in the World Bank for many years. It's certainly up front and center there. It's front and center in the World Food Programme when I was there. I mean, Germany has got a feminist development policy, as has Canada. Um, but at the end of the day, when we're looking at fragility and conflict and disasters, it's 2% of humanitarian assistance in 2021. The good news is that's double what it was in 2018. So, you know, Katrina talked about the cornerstone of sufficient and flexible funding, but yeah, I mean, nearly three quarters of countries in the bottom quartile of the Global Gender Gap Report are fragile and conflict countries. These are where these crises occur and only 2% of humanitarian assistance is actually targeted towards women. Almost no countries are doing gender-based budgeting in their governments. You know, if you look at your ministerial budgets, let's look at how that is assessed by gender. Let's think about data. Katrina mentioned data and in the GFPR tractor, that was something we focused on. If you're looking at the SDG monitoring, only 16% of data that's available is available for at least two points in time. How can you manage, how can you monitor change if you don't have time series data? If you're looking at displacement for disasters, you know, they don't systematically record the sex and age of IDPs. Now, you're recording that data from people, so it, it's beyond me why you're not recording that. So of the 14% that do it, only 25% of them do it absolutely systematically. And if you think about displacement, particularly conflict displacement, the average displacement now is nine years. If you do not understand the sex and age distribution of your IDPs, how do you program? I mean, a young girl moves from being a child to being an adolescent to potentially being a woman in the period of time that they're in an IDP camp. And then the final one is norms are powerful, even when it leads to the death of women. I gave you a 1991 example from Bangladesh, but that's not changed. The 2022 massive floods in Pakistan led to deaths of women because men would not allow their wives to go to displacement camps and some villages became completely surrounded by water. So men had gone to displacement camps to get food, but the women were left behind. So as we move to the next slide, let's look at um, the glass half full or half empty. 17 SDGs, actually that should be six, have no gender indicators. No gender indicators. When SDG six is all about water, do we know how much water women collect? Seven, you know, it's the same energy. Do we know how much fuel would? Look at the environmental and the biodiversity one. Do we know how involved women are in that? 18 countries, husbands can't, can prevent their wives from working. You know, no equal inheritance rights, no protection against domestic violence. 750 million women and girls married before the age of 18. In some countries, 25% of girls under 15 are married. 
those are children. They cannot consent. It is damaging their own human development if they have an early pregnancy. Look at the number of landholders, 13%. And less than a quarter of parliamentary seats are held by women. So women's voices are not heard. Gender pay gap. And the final one in terms of resilience, women and children are 14 times more likely to die in disasters. Women are paying with their lives. And as we move to the final slide, then, you know, what does it mean? Women are the resilience for the families. They're the ones who sacrifice. We saw it again in COVID. They were the caregivers. They were the ones who lost jobs. They're the ones who give up their food. So women are the resilience for their families. So if we want more resilient households and food systems, we actually need to see women. And that means data, data, data. I listened to so many sessions where people report data, but they don't disaggregate it by sex. If you're saying you have 100 farmers, why aren't we saying how many um, female farmers and how many male farmers in that? We have to commit to collecting data. We have to commit to revealing it, to measuring it and monitoring it. And I will leave it there, Charlotte. Thank you very much, Lynn, for outlining the progress, but also the, the still remaining huge challenges. Um, so really appreciate that uh, intervention. And I'm sure we'll get some, some questions. Um, we're moving soon to the Q&A portion. So please do continue to submit your questions at ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. Our last, uh, but certainly not least, speaker is Martin van Mukop. Uh, he is the um, Global Director of the World Bank uh, Agriculture and Food Global Practice. And in that role provides leadership to the formulation and implementation of the bank's strategy and knowledge in agriculture and food, and oversees the operationalization of the bank's vision on agriculture and food. Uh, Martin and his colleagues have spent much time looking at how to finance food systems transformation. And Yo mentioned early on that uh, he and Martin also collaborated on, in the context of the UNFSS climate lever. So we're delighted to have you with us, Martin. Uh, money funding is very important. Um, so the floor is yours. Very good. Well, thank you very much, uh, Charlotte, and uh, hello to uh, to everybody. Um, let me also start to uh, congratulate Dirk on his new appointment and wishing him uh, lots of success and also lots of fun in his, uh, in his new position. And of course, I'm looking forward to continuing working with you, Dirk, uh, now in your new capacity. Um, the bank is one of the founding members of the uh, of the CGR, so I'm very pleased. I mean, to be part of this uh, panel and then also share a few reflections, as you said, Charlotte, about the financing of the food system transformation that is needed to support healthy people, planet, and uh, economy. Um, let me start by saying that, from our perspective, the World Bank, I mean, that is that the case for food system transformation is very compelling uh, to the extent that we think that business as usual is no longer an option and in fact a scenario that needs to be avoided um, and a clear indication of that is that the hidden health and environmental costs of the global food system as we know it are of course enormous now you've done some calculations of this in the lead up to the uh, food system summit in 2021 and our best estimate is that uh, these hidden costs uh, are in the order of about 12 trillion dollars per year uh, this is a very big number especially as you you know, keep in mind that the market value of the food system is about 12% of global GDP, 
or about $10 trillion per year. So clearly the food system as we know it is, is not fit for uh, purpose. Uh, and at the same time then, I mean, the challenges that the global food system is facing are enormous. I mean, the global food system will need to produce and to grow food for 2 billion more people by 2050. And, and since without food systems transformation, I mean, the goals of the Paris Agreement of a 1.5 or 2 degree world will not be achieved. I mean, the global food system will need to grow more food uh, while reducing its carbon footprint uh, considerably. Um, and of course, you know, these challenges are even more enormous uh, because the headwinds of climate change are blowing harder and harder. I mean, the, the global food system is not only a culprit of climate change, but also very much a victim of climate change. And I think Joe uh, already mentioned it. You know, it's already estimated that agricultural productivity growth, I mean, would have been 20% higher, 21% higher in the absence of climate change. So in this respect, I mean, clearly the 500 million farmers in the world are very much in the front line of being confronted with the effects of climate change. Uh, now, in fact, it could already be argued, I mean, that that, that agriculture is already in uncharted territory. Uh, Dirk was talking about the very high temperatures in July, and actually the last time our planet was as hot as it is now was 125,000 years ago. And if you keep in mind, I mean, a human mankind and started doing agriculture 10,000 years ago, the implication is, I mean, that all of us are now living in a climate that no human has lived in since the birth of agriculture. Uh, so in view of this, I mean, the bank's position is that there really is no alternative to the need for a radical transformation of our food system in support of healthy people, planet and economy. Now, of course, that is easier said than done. Uh, this is especially when you consider that the required financing for successful food system transformation, and we've done also some calculations in the lead up to the UN Food System Summit in 2021, it's estimated that the investments are, additional investments are needed for about $350 billion per year for the next 10 years. And not a single institution can do, of course, this, uh, do this alone, including the World Bank. Uh, so collaboration, therefore, is, is very much critical. Uh, as well as uh, opportunities um, for, for leverage. So, so how do we then go about this? Um, so we think, and it was also mentioned by a few other speakers, I mean, the first entry point would be to get the incentives right. Uh, global public support provided to agriculture and food exceeds, I mean, $600 billion per year, as mentioned. Uh, much, much of this public support, you know, um, leads to very inefficient use of inputs, you know, unsustainable production practices. It promotes unfavorable nutrition outcomes. It's, bad, it's simply bad value for money. I mean, farmers only receive about 35% of each dollar and, and, and support that public support often encourages uh, production practices that are really unsustainable. So clearly current public financing in support of agriculture is part of the food system problems. And our, our estimates that we've done the World Bank together with IFPRI actually suggest that by, that by repurposing this public support that we can really improve food security, make healthy diets more affordable, reduce poverty, bring down greenhouse gas emissions. So realigning and redirecting policies and public expenditures, I mean, to create the proper incentives can really deliver, I mean, on the triple win of healthy people, planet and, and economy. Uh, the second entry point, also mentioned already by a few speakers, I mean, would be to scale private sector investments in agriculture and food, and more importantly, actually, to improve the quality of private sector investments in agriculture and food. 
Uh, and this is important because you know the the private sector spends about two trillion dollars per year on agriculture and food. This is investments, but more importantly, procurement as well. Mm -hmm. And the World Benchmarking Alliance has done some in-depth research about this, and the conclusion is that the application of ESG standards in the food sector is really, really lagging. Uh, what's happening on ESG standards in other sectors? Think about energy on transport. So there's a lot of greenwashing going on. Uh, so to resolve this, we need a public-private compact in every country under which the public sector, with support of IFIs, I mean, makes available de-risking arrangement to the private sector in order to incentivize investments in greening supply chains, while then in return, uh, the private sector benefiting from these de-risking arrangements would raise the bar on ESD standards, uh, which of course is very much needed in the, in the food sector. Uh, the third entry point uh, would be to scale up climate financing to agriculture and food. You know, agriculture and food right now receives only 4.3% of global climate financing. Uh, you know, this is about two point, about $28, $29 billion out of the $660 billion total. You know, if, if agriculture and food would receive one third of this, in line with this contribution to the global greenhouse gas emissions, this would mean $220 billion in climate financing going to agriculture and food. Now, a critical enabler, uh, we think, to scale up climate financing to agriculture and food would be the availability of a low-cost, almost real-time monitoring, reporting, and verification protocol for soil health. I mean, we think this is a missing piece. If that's available, we could see a rapid increase in climate financing going into agriculture and food. And of course, the opportunities are tremendous. Um, and then a fourth uh, entry point that I want to put forward here, Charlotte, uh, would be to address really the fragmented nature of current financing to agriculture and food. And, 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 and that, from that point of view, I mean, the global food and nutrition security dashboard that Dirk also mentioned earlier that we developed, I mean, with the Food Systems 2030 uh, multi-donor uh, trust fund is actually very helpful when it comes to shine actually a more transparent light on the many donor financing flows, I mean, to agriculture and, and food. Um, now, in the bank, uh, we are acting on this agenda to our analytics and financing in close collaboration with, uh, with partners, including Germany. Uh, since 2020, I mean, we have co-hosted, I mean, global policy dialogues where we engaged 49 countries so far to a total of 10 uh, dialogues. We're going to do another dialogue in, in Tanzania at the AGFR next week. Um, we are working closely with the UIE COP28 uh, presidency team, I mean, to continue to mobilize action on agriculture and food for climate, including an endorsement to the leaders' declaration that's being worked on. At the national level, and this is where the action needs to happen, you know, we are engaged right now in 30 countries and growing, uh, providing those countries with technical and financial support to assess policies and public expenditures and guide policy action for sustainable agriculture. And also now we are entering in a very exciting phase of working with countries to help them progress on implementing uh, important policy reforms. So we're going to be moving from talking about it and analyzing it and, and uh, actually towards the, implement, towards the implementation. And um, so we recently awarded Bangladesh, Ghana, Malawi, Mozambique, and Madagascar with implementation support grants, I mean, for a total of $75 million from our food systems, multi-donor trust funds. And, and those grants will really finance the design and implementation of activities to repurpose 
public policies and extended pro uh, and expenditure programs and scale them up. I mean, to World Bank uh, operations. So, so Charlotte, those are a few perspectives uh, from our side on financing uh, food system transformation. I'll head it back to you, and I'm looking forward to the uh, Q and A. Thanks. Thank you so much, Martin. Really great overview and um, of both the challenges, but the solutions that are being put forward on on how to finance food systems transformation. So we're now uh, arrived at the Q&A session and I will kick off right away. Thanks to all of our uh, audience to submit some questions. Um, we have a question that will first direct to you, uh, Simeon. It's um, coming from Ranjana Bhattacharji. Uh, the question is, in Africa, food availability is not only a challenge, um, um, but it's actually the processing and transport systems that make food loss and accessibility challenging. How can we position ourselves to better address these issues? And maybe before you answer, I would also like to add maybe that it's also the policies themselves that are sometimes an issue. And, and to make a plug here for a um, trade monitor publication that IFPRI puts together with Academia 2063, which will be presented actually next week at the um, AGRF. But over to you, Simeon, for answering this question about how to make more progress on processing and transportation infrastructure. No, thank you, uh, uh, Charlotte, and, and thank you to the person who asked the, uh, a critical question. In um, the three, you know, uh, sort of uh, solutions that um, I proposed in my talk, the second one was exactly on um, access to markets. And I think uh, it's quite critical. So, and, and, and it's true. If uh, uh, you don't have access to a market, uh, you know, your production that located in a remote area will certainly spoil. And so uh, I agree with that particular comment and it's important to, to ensure that uh, uh, we work on rural infrastructure. In fact, if we have done some work on that, you know, I remember the work of Schengen file in the past where, where they have indicated that um, investment, public, uh, uh, investment, public good like like road uh, processing and so on, have a much higher return than any other investment. So, so that's why I think that uh, uh, the CGIA together with development partners with countries need to be able to uh, uh, scale up uh, 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 investment into uh, rural infrastructure that can actually help to increase the demand on 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 food. So, I I, I concur. I agree. And uh, this partnership with government, partnership with uh, uh, multilateral you know, donors, regional banks, to me is critical to be able to alleviate the food you know, uh, problem. So I, I nothing more to say than to say this is really needed. How to do it? Form this partnership together. We can have we can have a solution. Over. Thank you very much, uh, Simeon. Um, I have a couple of questions I'm going to direct to Katrina. One comes from Samuel from Uganda, who wants to understand how are resilience and livelihood interventions being undertaken in refugee settlements and camps? And then the second uh, question is um, coming from the Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance at USAID, Cindy Cox who wants to know whether early warning systems are used or considered in conflict or migration contexts as well. Over to you, Katrina. 
Thanks for those really important questions. Um, uh, you know, with our fragility conflict and migration initiative, we're definitely interested in um, in these questions here. Um, in terms of looking at resilience and livelihood interventions um, amongst vulnerable populations like refugees and those living in refugee camps, um, we're definitely embarking on a number of, of research projects to get into camps and do qualitative work to understand what are the livelihood challenges faced um, and to understand what types of opportunities there are for employment um, needs in, in terms of food um, and gender equality concerns. Um, we have a couple also of um, rigorous randomized control trials that we're doing with IDPs. Um, um, so these are causal impact evaluations. For example, in Nigeria, we're um, uh, evaluating the impacts of a program that's providing vouchers for biofortified seed bundles to internally displaced persons. Um, and it's aiming to really integrate them into new communities. Um, in Somalia, we are um, evaluating impacts of poverty graduation program for internally displaced persons that includes cash support as well as asset transfers um, and training um, and engagement with savings groups. Uh, so we're, we're really interested in looking into opportunities where there are particular specific programs being deployed in order to be able to comment on and say something about how that programming could be improved in its targeting or in other parameters of its design and approach. Um, but um, definitely there are, of course, data challenges. And um, so we are, um, are trying to look into those. Speaking a bit to what Lynn Brown was saying today about the need for gender disaggregated data, um, we are looking at um, uh, uh, doing some research um, on women's and, and this with Musna Alvi, who is helping us out here, looking at um, women migrants and trying to understand the particular um, challenges that they face. We have a Women's Empowerment and Migration Index, um, so we can kind of understand some of the, the challenges faced and what actually can promote, um, overcome barriers and, and promote um, uh, resilient livelihoods in those groups. So I think, thank you for this question, and I think it's really important to do a combination of rigorous quantitative as well as rich qualitative work here to sort of triangulate solutions for these most vulnerable populations. Um, and I believe the next question, um, Charlotte, can you remind me of where we were on that question? I think it's been. Uh, yes, it was um, about uh, early warning systems and whether these are already used or considered to be used in conflict or migration contexts. Perfect. Um, so I feel like the um, the there are many settings that are, are affected by conflict and in which migration is very prevalent, in which early warning, early action systems are in place. Um, you know, re recently we've been, for example, engaging um, with some research um, looking at anticipatory action programming and um, early warning systems in Mali. Um, so we're, we're um, talking about ways that we might support World Food Program um, activities there. Um, Certainly, um, the the number of areas that are that are fragile and conflict affected um, is is large, and and so they're definitely a part of this. Um, I I think though that there are unique challenges in such settings in terms of of taking warnings and turning it into action for populations that might be more mobile or hard to reach. So I think this is a really, um, you've really hit upon with this question, um, a challenge of some of these systems is trying to find effective ways um, to address um, uh, 
food security needs amongst these very vulnerable populations. Over. Great. Thanks, Katrina. I would also encourage um, Cindy and others in the audience to take a look at the GFPR chapter on early warning systems, where we do, in fact, argue that there is a greater need to take uh, into consideration sometimes fast-moving conflict developments or migration developments. And I believe that one of the future uh, seminars in this series is actually also going to look at this um, integration of existing early warning systems uh, so that we can have a more coherent and integrated uh, set of figures and guidance to give to, to policymakers as they think about uh, crisis response. Um, Martine. Um, I have two for you. One is sort of just to understand a little bit, you have a new president uh, at the World Bank, uh, Ajay Manga. What is his vision on food and agriculture transformation on food systems? Uh, very briefly, maybe that's a big question. But the second question is picking up on something that you said about the still very limited uh, uh, amount of funding that is going into climate solutions in in the ag and land use space. Um, how do you explain that? Is it just that it's actually technically rather complicated to measure and evaluate things like carbon sequestration in, in agricultural land or forests? Or is there also still this old kind of um, thinking that allowing folks to uh, to to do some mitigation in agriculture and food systems somehow takes away or is perceived to be taken away from the urgent need to reduce emissions on the industrial uh, side. Thanks, thanks a lot. And, and let me start with me that second part of the question. Um, so, um, you know, many of the climate smart agriculture country profiles that we have done, the bank actually in collaboration with CGR, many um shows that many climate smart solutions actually you know provide a triple win so they reduce the carbon footprint build resilience and actually increase productivity so there's not really uh, you know a significant trade-off between pursuing mitigation and pursuing resilience uh, so in that sense you know i mean looking at climate financing um in support of measures to reduce the carbon footprint would not necessarily go at the expense of building resilience in, in, in food systems. Um, um, so I, I think there are two problems. Um, I think one I already mentioned, you know, it's not easy to measure at um, low cost and almost real time. I mean, soil health and more precisely soil carbon. Um, you know, I myself was a, a task team leader for one of the first biocarbon projects that we did in India about 20 years ago. And about 50% of the offtake agreement that was that we, that we financed to the biocarbon fund went actually to um, for the monitoring, reporting, and verification. Um, so clearly, there's a big payoff if we can have remote sensing type of arrangements that actually bring down, I mean, those costs um, and provide kind of objective measures, uh, objective measures there. I think there's also in the soil science community some questions about the permanency of um, soil sequestering carbon. I said that I think that's also an obstacle. And thirdly, you know, uh, particularly in, in our client countries uh, where many where we see many smallholder holdings, of course, there's a lot of fragmentation 
Uh, that means actually there are also kind of high transaction costs <clears throat> that need to be addressed by looking at measures on how to kind of improve aggregation. So those were, I, I think, I think those are the three things that they need to be resolved. But having a good MRV protocol, low cost, almost real time, for us is actually the missing piece. Uh, now on the on the first part of the question, um, a lot of interest by our shareholders to. Um, for the bank to do more on climate. Uh, so in that respect, uh, at our annual meetings next month um, in October, um, we expect our, our shareholders to approve, I mean, a new mission statement of the bank. Um, right now, a mission statement is world free of poverty, and it's gonna be a world free of poverty uh, on a livable planet. I mean, the planet, connotation reflecting the uh, increased emphasis on environment, uh, climate, uh, sustainability, et cetera. And the, kind of the living uh, connotation is more the kind of the people dimension, inclusion dimension, social dimension. Uh, our board of executive directors already endorsed that. So we expect our board of governors to sign off on that. And now the interesting thing is if you, if you read a more detailed uh, paper that was sent to the board, uh, a number of global challenges are being identified and need to be addressed before the bank can, can claim success that this new mission is going to be achieved. Uh, of course, climate, the energy transition, et cetera, are part of those global challenges. But interestingly, food and nutrition security actually is also one of those global challenges. And that means that uh, the bank's engagement on food and nutrition security will be a signature engagement it will become uh, much more so than it already is uh, being part of the bank's dna um, and in that respect um, uh, i'm also very pleased i mean that that we're already kind of putting the money where our mouth is because last year uh, in, in response to the rising food and nutrition insecurity that uh, yo kind of laid out very nicely in his presentation uh, earlier um, the bank announced that it would make $30 billion available between uh, April 22 and June uh, 2023. Uh, we will be going to the board uh, in a few weeks' time to report, to give our final report uh, on that period. And actually, we didn't raise $30 billion, but actually the bank mobilized $44 billion. So, so we can actually went way beyond um, uh, what we said we would do. And, and I think that number is a kind of a nice reflection that food and nutrition security is a very high priority on a new leadership. Uh, so back to you, Shalom. That, that's great. Thank you very much. The focus on climate and food and agriculture is, is great to see at the World Bank. And I hope it translates into a similar focus on food and ag at the COP this year. Um, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask Lynn uh, a question that's come in uh, anonymously, and it's, it's a perfect question for you, Lynn. Um, could you talk about nutritional security for women, but you got to do it in like a minute. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, nutritional security for women. Well, you've got to reach them first. I mean, if we don't see women, how are we going to reach them? And so I'm going to just be a little controversial. Um, let's talk Afghanistan. I mean, women are becoming completely and absolutely invisible in that country. And the global governance system doesn't actually have any ability, it appears, to handle it. Um, I have to wonder if it was reversed and it was women who were all in power and they decided to make men invisible and not educate them and 
keep them in their homes, et cetera, would you have a different um, type of approach? So I think um, with women in nutrition, you need to empower them in their households. You need to empower them in the economy because you know your resilience is about, if you're poor, you're not resilient. So empower them in the economy, enable them to have good jobs, enable them to safely move around. So th there's a whole lot of things to do before women get access to food in their household. So yeah, I'm not gonna ask, answer it as a specific nutrition question, I'm answering it much more broadly. And I guess for a, you know, for me, make sure the crops that women grow are more nutritious. So Katrina mentioned biofortified crops. So, you know, nutrient enriched crops ensure that they have access to those types of crops for what they are growing. So they're automatically more nutritious and particularly the iron crops, which they need more. Thank you very much, Lynn. I think what comes through loud and clear from your presentation and this answer is that sometimes norms around gender or, or women are actually uh, the real issue we need to address in, in many, many places in the world. We have great research, but uh, there are strong norms that are in place that, that somehow um, we need to be thinking about uh, a, a serious obstacle uh, to increase food security or increase resilience uh, in, in, for, for women. Um, we've reached the end of our uh, seminar, and I'd like to thank our distinguished speakers and our audience for all of your questions very, very much. Um, big thanks also to IPRI's event management team. Um, the second seminar in this BMZ series will take place on the 21st of September at this year's Topentag. It's actually going to be a hybrid event. We'll be there in person as well. And the topic will be uh, ecosystem service payments. And let me also draw your attention to a seminar that is being conducted by IFPRI together with Amos on the 7th of September, where we will be looking at the market concentration in the grain industry. Many thanks to all of you and wishing you a great rest of your day uh, from wherever you're tuning in from.